Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 29 this morning. In Galatians 1, Paul had insisted that the gospel he had been preaching was revealed to him personally by Jesus himself. The gospel Paul had been preaching was also confirmed by the apostles, as Paul says in chapter 2. The gospel Paul had been preaching was also confirmed by the Holy Spirit in the experience of the Galatians, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. The gospel Paul had been preaching was also backed up by Old Testament scripture, in chapter 3, verses 6 to 14, where Paul specifically used the example of Abraham. Now, in verses 15 through 29, Paul is going to explain more fully how the covenant promise God gave to Abraham by faith fits in with the law of Moses, which wasn't given until 430 years later. Did the law of Moses set aside or annul the idea of being saved by faith? We'll see. But first, let's pray. Lord, guide our thinking this morning as we consider this very complicated passage. Show us what you have for us out of your word and how it applies to our life. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 15 through 29, Paul compares the law and the promise. Now, by law, Paul is referring to the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Paul talks about the promise, he's referring to the promise God gave to Abraham by faith 430 years earlier. In a nutshell, this was the solemn promise God, that God would bless Abraham and his descendants, and that in them all nations or Gentiles of the world would be blessed. The words covenant and promise are used synonymously in this passage. Covenant and, and promise refer to the same thing. As I mentioned last week, Abraham did not receive this covenant promise by keeping the law of Moses. The law of Moses had not yet been given in Abraham's time. Abraham did not receive this covenant promise because he was circumcised. He had not yet been circumcised when God gave him the promise. He did not receive this covenant promise because he was so righteous. He was not. God received this cover, Abraham received this covenant promise solely by grace through faith. And Paul insists that the law God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai did not replace the promise God gave to Abraham by faith. With that background, let's read verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. Now, let me give an example of Paul's example. Imagine that I'm an auto mechanic, and I make a solemn promise to you that I will have your car fixed by next Friday. Let me put that in a contract. If I don't follow through with that, I've broken my promise and in breach, and in breach of the contract. That's how Paul views the covenant promise God made with Abraham. A promise given by faith 
Paul will argue that the law of Moses, which wasn't given until 430 years later, does not do away with that covenant promise that God made with Abraham, which was by faith. Verse 16, Paul says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Now, the word seed in this context is problematic because it can either be singular or plural in Hebrew and Greek as it is in English. So the promise God gave to Abraham was, Abraham and your seed, all nations will be blessed. So did that mean Abraham in your descendants, plural, all nations will be blessed? Or in your descendant, singular, all nations will be blessed? The answer is yes. God would indeed bless Abraham's physical descendants. But in the course of biblical history, Scripture progressively revealed that this promise also included a particular descendant. So when Paul says the seed refers to one person, he is not arguing from grammar, because seed can be singular or plural. Paul is making a scriptural point, as it says in verse 16. He's talking about how in the progressive revelation of Scripture, God increasingly made clear that Abraham's seed was not just Abraham's descendants in general, though it included them, but was progressively narrowed down in Scripture to one specific descendant who would represent all of Israel. So even in Genesis, the promise given to Abraham was narrowed down to Isaac, not Ishmael. The promise given to Isaac was narrowed down to Jacob, not Esau. And the promise given to Jacob was narrowed down to the tribe of Judah, not to the other tribes. Then God selected a particular family of Judah, the family of Jesse. Then God selected the youngest son of Jesse, a boy named David, who would grow up to be king. The prophets later prophesied that a descendant of King David would rule over an eternal kingdom. The prophets foretold that this specific descendant of David would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would minister in Galilee, that he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that he would be despised and rejected, that his hands and feet would be pierced, that his enemies would cast lots for his clothing, that he would die with the wicked, and that his body would not decay. Jesus was that descendant of King David who fulfilled all these prophecies. And Paul is saying that Jesus is the seed to which Abraham's promise ultimately pointed. Paul goes on to explain in verse 17, what I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Okay, so let's pretend 
that I promised before church is over this morning, I will give you a free gift of something in my hand. And all you have to do is believe that it's something good and not just worms or bugs or something. So you believe me, and I open my hand and reveal a $20 bill. But you have to wait sometime before the end of service for it. Ten minutes later, I say, now if you want the money I promised to give you, you now have to agree to sweep the entire church parking lot every Saturday for two years. You'd probably be thinking, hey, wait a minute. You promised that money if I would just believe you, and now you're saying I have to work for it? That's wages, not a free gift like you promised. And that's Paul's point. God gave Abraham a promise based on faith. God didn't change the deal 430 years later when he gave the law of Moses. The law of Moses was not saying, okay, you now have to keep all these commandments in order to get what I promised. At its very core, the law of Moses was about loving God with all your heart and keeping his commandments because of that love. It was never about keeping commandments to earn God's love or salvation. Well, that leads to the question in verse 19. Why then was the law of Moses given at all? And Paul answers, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now, if you remember back in our study of the book of Genesis, people committed all kinds of sins even before the law of Moses was written. For example, Cain killed Abel before there was a law against murder. The people in Noah's time committed all kinds of violence long before the law of Moses. Sodom and Gomorrah committed gross immorality long before there was a law against such perversion. I think Paul is saying that the law of Moses was given because of transgressions like these. So, for example, back when my kids were little, if my son hit his little sister, I would have expected him to know better even if I had not specifically told him not to hit his sister, and he would have been punished. But after he hit his sister, I lay down the law. Thou shalt not hit thy sister. Similarly, the law of Moses was given because of people's transgressions. But the law did not nullify the promise God had given Abraham by faith. Salvation was still by faith, even under the law of Moses. In verse 21, Paul asks, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? In other words, is the law of Moses in opposition to the promise God gave to Abraham? Paul answers, absolutely not. You see, Paul is not against the law of Moses. In fact, years later, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, Paul will say that the law is holy and just and good. Continuing in verse 21, Paul explains, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. You see, Paul had explained in chapter 2 that life, eternal life, could only come from the law if you obeyed it perfectly. The problem was not with the law itself, but with people who couldn't keep it perfectly. Verses 22 and 23 say, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until 
the faith that was to come would be revealed. So how was everything locked up under sin and held in custody? People in Old Testament times were locked up under sin in the sense that they were unable to keep the law perfectly. And the sacrifices never actually paid for sin. The sacrifices uh, just covered the sin over until the final sacrifice of Christ would take away the penalty for sin once and for all. So the Old Testament saints were held in custody under sin, so to speak, until Christ's final sacrifice in which they were freed from the penalty of sin by their faith. Paul then gives another way of looking at it in verses 24 and 25. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Back in Paul's time, wealthy people would appoint an educated slave, often a prisoner of war, to be a guardian for their child. This guardian would be like a nanny, a mentor, a tutor, or a teacher. Paul says that the law of Moses was our mentor, tutor, or teacher. Presumably, teaching people about God's holiness and the importance of obeying him fully and without question. When I was in basic training, we had to do a lot of menial nitpicky stuff. For example, our underwear and our t-shirts and the corners of our bed sheets all had to be folded precisely in a certain way. Our footlocker had to be organized in a very specific way. The bedposts at the foot of our beds had to be all perfectly aligned with one another on, on our side of the room as straight as an arrow. These were nitpicky regulations that we never had to do again once we left basic training. So why did we have to do all this stuff? The point was to show us the importance of obeying authority, even if we thought it was stupid. If we got out on the flight line and didn't follow the rules, people could die, literally. I think Paul's point may, may be that all those seemingly trivial rituals and ceremonies in the Law of Moses was like our mentor or tutor, teaching people the fact of God's holiness and the importance of strict obedience to him. When Paul says in verse 25, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, he's not saying we're now free to lie, cheat, steal, get drunk, or have orgies. And we know that because Paul says in Galatians 5 that those who do such things will not inherit eternal life. But just like back when in basic training, when I had I, I when I got out of basic training, I no longer had to fold my t-shirts or underwear or bed corners in a certain way. Paul's point seems to be that once Christ died as the ultimate sacrifice to which all the other sacrifices pointed, we no longer have to keep all those specific food laws or ritual regulations or, or feast days or all of those things because we've hopefully learned the lesson of God's authority and holiness. And we obey him because we love him and not because of ritual obligation. Verses 26 and 27, Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. I've said many times before, baptism is intended to be the first public expression of our faith in Christ. Baptism doesn't save us any more than circumcision did. 
baptism is like a wedding ring. It's just a symbol of your relationship. Your baptism is a symbol of your relationship as a child of God through faith in Christ. Now, I'll come back to verse 28 in a minute. But verse 29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. Those who have been adopted, so to speak, into Christ's family by faith are now spiritual Jews. We get to inherit the promise that God gave to Abraham along with other believing Jews. That promise of blessing includes, among other things, forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the promise of a future kingdom of peace and righteousness in which Christ will personally reign as king and there will be no more suffering. So what practical lessons can we take away from this passage? I'm just going to focus on one thing this morning. And that is in verse 28, which says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. These are just examples, of course. The point is that in Christ, superficial characteristics like social status, sex, ethnic identity, country of origin, hair color, or skin color, none of these things make any difference in the body of Christ. Therefore, racism or anti-Semitism is egregious sin and should not be tolerated among Christians. Now, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to pursue a long rabbit trail concerning something that is infecting every area of society today, from politics to corporations to media and even elementary schools. That is diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. So what does that have to do with Galatians 3.28? Everything. Because diversity, equity, and inclusion is really not much more than a rebranded version of critical race theory. One of the tenets of critical race theory is that a person's primary identity is related to their skin color. This, of course, is completely contrary to Galatians 3.28 and to what Martin Luther King rightly taught about how we should judge people by their character and not by the color of their skin. The idea that a person's primary identity is skin color is often presented with very good-sounding arguments, but at its core, it is really not much different than what the KKK or other white supremacists believe. They just disagree with critical race theory over which skin color to glorify or demonize. These philosophies are all racist to the core and should be unconditionally condemned by the church. Another major tenet of critical race theory is the idea of systemic racism. The idea that racism is everywhere and ingrained in everything. This is not something that can be proven, it's simply assumed. When advocates can't find enough real evidence for systemic racism, they either stage phony racist attacks like the Jesse Smollett crime, or they talk about microaggressions, which are basically aggressions so microscopic that only those trained in critical race theory can see them. And this leads critical race theory proponents to imagine racism under every bush. For example, using hymns that talk about Jesus making us white as snow must be racist. Or whenever a white police officer arrests a black man, the motive must be racist even if the officer was protecting a black victim from a black assailant. Systemic racism is assumed to be behind almost everything. 
and that itself is racist. Another aspect of critical race theory is the idea of intersectionality. This is the idea that there are various levels of oppression. So if you are black, you are automatically oppressed. Even if you are Michelle Obama, who once complained of racism because people didn't pay attention to her when she was in line for coffee. Under the theory of intersectionality, if you are a black woman like Michelle, you are doubly oppressed because you are both black and female. Levels of oppression increase if you are also an immigrant or disabled or young or LGBTQQIP2SAA. And no, I'm not making that up. All those letters stand for something. So under this system of intersectionality, my granddaughter Autumn would be considered to be quadruply oppressed since she is black, female, young, and disabled. Never mind that she lives in an incredibly supportive and loving family, or that she goes to a supportive and loving church, or that the state and school systems have provided expensive support systems for her, or that she's never been oppressed a day in her life. Autumn is a case that demonstrates how ridiculous critical race theory can be in real life. Now, I'm not suggesting that racism doesn't exist. Of course it does. Racists come in all skin colors. And when specific race cases of racism occur, they should definitely be addressed and should never be tolerated in the church. But when people believe the lies that everything is systemically racist and that all white people are racist just because they're white and that everyone is oppressed except able-bodied white heterosexual males, that only tends to fan the flames of racism and division. And actually, that's precisely the point, because critical race theory stems from Marxist philosophy. Galatians 3.28 teaches that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, and by application no black or white, Asian, Hispanic or Native American. We are all one in Christ. Daniel chapter 11 says all peoples, nations, and languages will serve God. Jesus commands us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The book of Revelation says there will be people from all tribes, peoples, and languages worshiping before the throne of God. Therefore, all forms of racism, whether anti-Semitism or white supremacy or Black Lives Matter or KKK or critical race theory, all forms of racism are sinful, evil, fundamentally unchristian, and should never be tolerated in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, in a world that is increasingly divided over race, help us as Christians of all nationalities and races to be examples of what true unity in you is all about. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.